right. Today I'm joined by Julia Malott and Jesse Manisto, and I am really happy to be able to speak with both of you. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah thanks for having us. Yeah. I, um, I got to see both of you at Genspect and that was really nice. It was great to connect in person with people that I've had good connections with online and, and see you in the flesh and be able to chat. And I, I really enjoyed the conversations I had with both of you there. And I'm glad we get a chance to kind of talk about some of the issues that came up from that experience, as well as some of the broader cultural issues that are going on right now. And one of the things that I guess I've realized post-conference, post that conference, is how this there's there's a broader movement around our concerns about how gender ideology is affecting our culture and especially our young people. And many of us come together around those concerns. And yet within that broader movement, there are still people who have differences of where they'd like to see things go and how they feel about the way the culture is discussing gender. And some of these things have really come to a head recently in in a, in a pretty um, sharp way. I mean, we've seen a lot of frustration and anger expressed over uh, a, a Phil Illy wearing a dress at the conference, for instance. That's been a big theme that keeps coming up over and over again. People are really uh, divided on what they think that means and how they feel about that. And then Julia, you've also experienced a lot of um, blowback from your presence at the conference as a trans woman. And so I would just really like to to discuss maybe what what your thoughts are on that and then how how do we come back together and find what we actually share. So maybe first we can just talk about impressions. Jesse, what do you, what were what are some things that come up for you and what are your thoughts around this? I have been watching this unfold on Twitter since the conference and it was, you know, of course, like, like so many, it made me sad because that wasn't the feeling I had at the conference. We had that wonderful little uh, live session from the conference floor, the three of us after it mm -hmm. ended. And I think, you know, I, I really want to hear your impressions and what you were going to say, Julia, like in depth about what your experience was as a trans woman there. But in general, we all seemed pretty happy and like, this was great. There was a lot of positive connection, uh, constructive disagreement. I did feel that, that, that is something, it's one of course of GenSpec's goals is to bring people with different views in there to figure out what the healthy approach to sex and gender is. And the potential for that was very much there, at least in my experience. So, and then you bring Twitter into it and the dynamic of being in a conference with people who are willing to put their time and energy into being there and seeing who else is in the room, that's a different dynamic than you know the algorithmic conversation. So not that that's an original thought. <laughs> and that sounds the way that you're describing your experience is similar to my own. That was the feeling that I had after that. And Julia, I was reading um, something that you wrote uh, just this morning. I don't know when you wrote it, but I was reading it this morning and you were describing a, a very different feeling. And so I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, for sure. I started really talking publicly about gender stuff about two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I transitioned or started to transition a little over five years ago. Um, and in those first three years, I was very closed in and very focused on, you know, just my own world and my house and not looking much beyond that. And this was also beginning of COVID for part of that as well. So there wasn't much to look at outside. Um, and the reason why I started to speak out and really try to get involved beyond that bubble that I could create my safety bubble, so to say, was because I was noticing that the progressive narrative towards gender criticals was that, you know, they're, they're hateful, they're hateful they're transphobic, whatever you want to call it. They don't like you. They don't accept you. All of these things. And anytime somebody's going to cast an entire group of people as anything, that makes me question, really, they all, they, they're all coming from a hateful place. And I knew somewhere, it's very obvious that some people do have hate towards transgender people, but I didn't accept that it made any sense that everyone who has a gender critical view has hate towards someone like me. And I'm a curious person. So when we had an incident in my local school board here where a teacher went to the board and was shut down because she wasn't allowed to raise concerns with some books. I thought she doesn't seem very hateful. I guess I'll find out. So I reached out and I became great friends with her. Her name was Carolyn Bajoski. Well, it still is mm -hmm. Carolyn Bajoski. She's still alive. And um, she wasn't hateful at all. She had this amazing love for everybody and for me. And time and time again after that, I made a habit of anybody in Canada who ended up kind of crossing the school board or something, I'd be one of the ones to reach out to them and to chat with them and 
almost always I'd find that exact same thing of sure they have a concern about one of the many areas around you know gender identity theory or ideology or policies or whatever but it wasn't usually rooted in hate that being said there's also sometimes when it is and I think I'm well positioned to identify those cases because now I'm in this odd spot where I'm very well known especially up here in Canada and gender criticals who stand for what they say they stand for. The ones who say, yes, absolutely, you know, gender nonconformity is, in, is important. P adults have the right to live as they wish, but children, but mm -hmm. spaces. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm their perfect person to point to because they could say, look at someone like Julia. Julia does what we're asking. This works. Julia says it works. This is the path forward. And then there's a whole nother group who really, really dislikes me because they do have contempt and disdain for trans people and it pisses them off that, I, that I'm doing what I'm doing because their friends like me and then maybe they don't. And they don't really have a good talking point against me without saying, no, we just don't want you to dress that way. No, we just don't like that other people choose to call you she, even if you're not gonna make me call you she. And so this has been something I've observed over the past 18 months as I've been speaking publicly. And I've, I've noticed that there isn't always a lot of awareness of that within gender critical circles because even your own friends, right? Maybe you don't know exactly where they stand, what's motivating them, because there's these shared concerns about school policies, or there's these shared concerns about one of the many different spaces and the discussions that can be had around that. So going into GenSpec, I was apprehensive, but I've been apprehensive in many places. Like I try to put on a confident front when I go to protests, when I go to speak in front of large crowds, but I, I know that these are crowds that may have people who who don't love me. And so I, I didn't know what I would find. There were lots of people there, such as yourself, who I knew would be there and I was excited to, to meet in person. There was a few people there who I was quite certain I knew where they stood on me and that it wasn't going to be positive. And there was, of course, plenty of other people I, I knew nothing about. And I, I tried to stay as open-minded as possible. I was not there. I didn't want to come in kind of primed with a certain impression. Um, but I'd be lying if I said I felt comfortable at the conference. And, and by that, what I mean is I could sense that I was different and out of place. <laughs> I could sense people's discomfort. And that's normal when I'm at these events. Um, it was different at GenSpec, though, I think partly because I wasn't a speaker and I wasn't a known commodity, so to say. Mm -hmm. up, up here, usually when I show up to a protest now, there's enough people who know me that people who don't, their friends are going to be like, oh, it's Julia. And then and then they'll say what that or, or I'm speaking or something like that. So I have mm -hmm. the chance to kind of let people know where I stand. I recognize they're going to make assumptions about where I stand on a lot of these matters. And I'm okay with that. But it's helpful when I have the opportunity to put out that counter narrative of what I stand for and what I believe. Mm -hmm. That that wasn't GenSpec, of course, because I was just an attendee. And most people there, I'd say probably the the typical attendee was was a parent, a parent who's been affected by this and is in one of various support groups, whether that's through GenSpec or through a partner organization, probably doesn't have a particularly positive outlook on trans people because of what they've experienced. And so I was uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. Then, of course, there's the speakers. And same thing, you know, some speakers I thoroughly enjoyed and got tons out of their presentations. Some speakers, I, I, I noticed a lot of pointing towards transgender people, transgender women specifically as the problem, rather than pointing towards ideas as the problem. Mm. Um, and then all that culminated on that final day when, when Phil's picture was taken. I was actually standing close to Phil at the time and Laura. Um, I decided not to be in that photo because just the way everything was going down, I thought, I don't think I really want to be in this one. But then later on, the, the individual who runs the GenSpec Twitter asked if they could take my photo. And I said, okay. So I, I went ahead and did that and it, it went not the way Phyllis did viral, but still viral in a certain sense with a lot of really, really what I have called and continue to characterize as dehumanizing comments. Mm -hmm. And I use that word carefully because I don't mean dehumanizing in the sense of, you know, they didn't call me the pronouns I want or they didn't say, yes, you're, you're a woman. I mean, dehumanizing, like going after my physical features mm -hmm. or calling me really, really, you know, just extremely derogatory language and stuff mm -hmm. that sure that might be the normal on Twitter I don't think that's okay I don't think it's a good mm -mm. thing um so so all of that happened and so I I did share and kind of drew attention to that which I knew would bring more upon me but I thought it was important because once Phil blew up the conversation was muddied because Phil himself is controversial there's the AGP part that he proclaims there's the style and kind of dress and as I watched some of the conversation I thought there's a lot of questions here that are muddy in the water. What if you wore that dress? What would have happened? Well, it's, it's hard to say because you didn't. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, wait a minute, me. 
I wore the same thing I wear to work every day. I, I didn't push boundaries in terms of the kind of dress. I don't proclaim AGP. So really I am a biological male who wore clothing from the woman's side of Target to this event. And since I didn't share any more of my story with people, what spaces do I use? What do I call myself? What pronouns do I look for? None of that was even out there at Jen's back. And so anything that people carried forward was, was stuff that they carried forward themselves. But mm -hmm. I'm realizing I am taking up all of the time. So I'm going to stop here and let you two uh, respond. No, it's it's a, it's really interesting to hear your experience of that and your observations and what it was like for you. And I, I as you're talking, I'm thinking you, you are a bit of a lightning rod for both sides of this issue, being in being an, a, a public, vocal, transgender person who doesn't fall into the political camp that we see represented by by trans activism but also and you're you're sort of in this centrist position you're but you are a transgender person who enters into the dialogue on the gender critical side but for people who have a more conservative perspective they're going to have a problem with any trans representation so you're you're kind of getting it from both sides here and that must be an interesting and and difficult experience for you at times. And I I think back to uh, what my experiences were around uh, transsexualism, transgenderism, whatever we were calling it at the time prior to this political explosion. And in I knew one person that I'd gone to high school with who had sex reassignment uh, and was living as a woman. He was a, a a boy when I was in high school, he's my a friend of mine's older brother. And then I, when I met up with him later, he was she, and I had no, I was, I had curiosity. I had, we had lunch. It was nice to see. I, I struggle with the pronouns. I really do. Cause I think sometimes I, 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 I want to be respectful, you know, and somebody called me out for uh, using she, I think when I was talking about you, Julia, and my response was, I'm going to use what's, I'm going to make a decision on a case by case basis, just like I, just like we do in life. It's a new situation for a lot of us to be having this dialogue. For me, I'll use she when I see Julia because I feel like it fits better than he. That you know, you 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 do you. You nobody. I don't like compelled speech in either direction. I don't like somebody saying you can't say she. You have to say he any more than I like somebody telling me I have to respect Zizer or, you know, just let me, let me make my choice based on what feels most appropriate to me. So for um, the, the person I went to high school with out of respect, I'll say she, but I, I don't know how I felt about that at the time, but it wasn't a moral, I didn't have a moral judgment about it. I was just curious. Here's this person that's gone through this thing. What's going on? What, how did you choose this? And how do you feel about it? And how do you feel walking through your life this way? And, and um we have had this narrative in this whole gender critical movement, if you will call it, if you want to call it that, this this gender, the, the people who are opposed to gender ideology, especially with regard to young people, about how, especially as Gen Xers, we grew up in this time when you were free to kind of dress how you wanted and express yourself how you wanted, but we weren't forcing people to say that they thought of us a certain way. So it's kind of a, you do you, express yourself, wear what you want, be who you want, just and, the, and then the refrain is just don't come into women's spaces because we want to keep single sex spaces and keep, and and don't and and don't have uh, biological males competing in women's sports where there's an unfair advantage. And so we had this sort of narrative around some boundaries that we'd drawn culturally. And this conversation has kind of exploded that out of the water, which it it kind of reveals a divide between I think the the classical liberal mindset of Adults can make their own choices. Your freedom, don't coerce other people, but make your choice for your life and the more uh, conservative mindset. And so I I don't know if that's the proper framing of that, but Jesse, maybe you can speak to that a little bit because you're really involved in some of these dialogues through like Braver Angels and talking to both sides of this. So what are, what are your thoughts? I, the first thing I want to say is how much I, I agree with you on the pronoun usage. I have no rules for pronouns except for the relational element. Mm -hmm. What is the person I'm talking to? How will they best understand what I'm saying? How can I best communicate the point I'm trying to make? Mm -hmm. Sometimes if it is, you know, a male person who has violated, you know, a rapist is always he, you know, mm -hmm. that for me, that, that is a rule. 
But sometimes, you know, I'll have a trans friend who, and I want, what I want to emphasize is the friendship to a third party, right? To the person I'll be talking, you know, using first and second person pronouns, but to someone else, I may want to emphasize, you know, I was hanging out with Xander at, 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 uh, at Genspect and he is my mm -hmm. friend, you know? Mm -hmm. So we are so, the space we're in is on the one hand, so individualistic, this, you can choose your identity and it's all you, you create it alone without anyone else. And on the other hand, we're in this giant, these groups that are too big to function. They're, they're not too big to fail. They're too big to function. They should fail, which is all the gender critical people, all the trans people. And there's just so much diversity in there. And so the thing I loved about being at Genspect was talking to individual people and getting to know them. And so to that extent, Julia, I'm just so glad that you were there and that people like you were there and had the courage to come in knowing that there were going to be people there who didn't like you. And that's one of the strengths I see to Genspect is that we have transgender advisors, we have D-trans, you know, and we have clinicians, just a wide range of voices. And that's just so hard to keep going, especially when you then bring in this dynamic of, you know, emotions and how they get channeled online, the way that we think you're talking to some stranger, you can just explode at them. You can bring things from other relationships and apply them to a total stranger rather than getting to know that person. And that's where, you know, just being curious about the individual you're talking to and what brought him or her there is something I'm not perfect at that either, by the way, it's, I'm not claiming to be that, but I think it's where I try to start. And I wish we could, as a culture, as online users, we could, try to teach that to the younger generation and model it ourselves it it would but oh let's just let's just all get along I know it's not actually that easy because we do have some real hard when it comes down to making zero-sum choices policy decisions like are you or are you not going to be allowed in this space and I know that that some people will lose out and actually have pain uh based on like Julia you were talking about if you don't transition as a child there will be certain prices that you will pay and I thought that that is, you know, well, I still I'm against child transition, but that's an argument that we need to be able to at least answer and grapple with and have an answer to. And we won't have that if someone like you doesn't put it out there. And if you and you'll get scared away from doing it if you get piled on. So, yeah, I think that's such Thanks. a good point, Jesse, that there, there are aspects of this that people don't want to talk about because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. But maybe it's time to open that up and actually have some of those conversations and work on how can we fold people in who are who are different than our, than ourselves or than what we would want or expect how can we still accept them as individuals and julia when you use the word dehumanizing i think it's a very appropriate word and i saw a clip of a video where somebody that i like and respect very much was was making a point about the word dehumanizing and kind of saying that it's essentially a dog whistle and it's not really a it's it's an, anytime you hear that word it's something that that is a, a signifier of something that's actually invalid. It's like a rhetorical um, manipulation, if you will. And I, I very much disagree with that because I, I, I think that that's an. This expands outside of the gender arena and into internet culture at large. I think that there's this, this real propensity to forget the the humanity of the other person, and that's that is essentially. Uh, you know, I, I've been so anti-internet and anti-social media for a really long time. I've just seen the ills of it. I've seen, I, I tried so hard to keep it away from my kids. I'm concerned about the things that they might be influenced by, the way that it might hurt their sense of self, the way that they might, you know, early exposure to any exposure, honestly, I think to pornography, but especially early exposure to pornography is so dangerous. And there's so much of that online. And it's not just the porn. It's also just the way that we represent what it means to be a person, what it means to be, what it's, what's important about being a woman, what's important about being a man, what, how do we relate to one another? And one of the most toxic elements is the, it's always the comment section, right? Like yes. the way people tear each other to shreds and forget that we're human beings. Like they're, they're, there are, I love the, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm not saying this as a Christian, but I love the Christian saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. And, and that puts the person still in the center. you you can disagree with things that a person is doing. You can really think that they're very wrong, but to forget that you're actually talking to a person and to tear them up, it has real consequences for other people. And it perpetuates something that's really ugly. So I think that the word dehumanization is a good way to describe that process. It's forgetting the humanity of the people that you're talking to and about. 
Yeah, you mentioned that video that that Heather and Megan and Mary Lou did. It, that was that was interesting. So that was last Wednesday. I was um I was on Twitter and I saw a chat with Megan Murphy about the dress stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just had this feeling. I'm like, I'm going to come up in this. I, I suspect I'm going to come mm -hmm. up. So I I uh, watched the video and recorded it as well because I suspected I'd come up. And mm -hmm. Chanel also messaged me and was like, "You should watch this video because the moment that my name was mentioned and. Mm -hmm. It was it was very disappointing. So Megan Murphy was hosting this, mm -hmm. and she um, had seen an open letter I wrote to Jen Speck that I'd posted a day, a day or two before, mm -hmm. and so she read half of that letter mm -hmm. to uh, to Heather, not the whole thing, but half of it. And I was referring to exactly what I mentioned here: this photo of me that had been posted with some really really nasty dehumanizing comments. And mm -hmm. she didn't bring this up. She didn't explore. She didn't clarify what it was about. She just mm -hmm. sort of put this out to Heather. And while I was disappointed in Heather's response, because it was, as you kind of described, it was not, it was not a caring response. It, it made all the worst assumptions about me. Um, I was more disappointed in Megan because, mm -hmm. well, Heather only knew what Megan had put out to her. Megan knew what was there. And when I then shared this very politely and raised it online, I went through five more days of Megan accusing me of all kinds of things. And I won't respect her boundaries to leave her alone. I'm like, I've tweeted to you three times and then I stopped and five days later, you're still going on about this whole thing about how narcissistic I am and all of these elements. But but that's what I've seen in this fight, if we're going to call it that, right? Is that there's individuals who are anti-trans. Mm -hmm. There are individuals here who are disgusted by the idea of a biological male presenting in a feminine manner who are who have gotten themselves in such a hardline place that they feel that's appropriate to, to do to somebody. And it's not everybody, but having been on that other side, having spent my, so much time with other trans people with those progressive circles, that's what they see. They see those behaviors and it's easy to just like, I'm just like I'm suggesting Megan's doing of extending certain things towards everybody, including me, they can do the same thing towards this movement and say, Jen Speck and everyone who would attend Jen Speck is a horrible bigot because there are people who do that sort of stuff and some of them were at Jen Speck. And even if that isn't Stella and even mm -hmm. if that isn't the organization as a whole, it's, it's there. And I guess for my part, I think part of my role is to highlight that is to be mm -hmm. present, like what Jesse said, mm -hmm. to make that clear so that these individuals and these organizations can decide what they're going to do about this. Mm -hmm. I, I do hold Jen Speck responsible for, parts of this, not all of this. And when I say Jen Speck, I don't mean the individuals, I mean the organization, because the organization sets the tone. The organization decides who's going to speak. The organization runs the support groups. And the number of parents who have reached out to me in the past two weeks, having seen what I said and said, wow, yes, I went into a support group when I was struggling. And I had to leave because mm -hmm. it, it was making things more extreme. It was, you know, angry parents and angry parents kind of building on the extremism. And, and I saw that at Jen Speck too. There was this one one of my most devastating moments, I talked to this this father about um, the situation with his son and it was a very heartfelt, emotional conversation. And then his wife came over and we, we talked a bit more. And then they said, okay, we have to run out and buy the turf playing cards before they sell out. And I just thought, you're telling me about this relationship and how broken it is and how you're trying to keep your son, but you're losing him. Do you really think going home with turf playing cards is a good idea for that move? Like you can do that, but is that gonna help this relationship? Mm. Is that gonna help you recover or not? Because some of the people I work with, there's this one woman who lives about two hours from me and she will only speak to me on the phone about this stuff when her daughter is at school because she is she has gender critical concerns, but she's like, but my daughter's on binary. I've been able to talk her away from doing any sort of procedures. Mm -hmm. We're at a really good spot. We have a trust relationship and I cannot in any way let her think that I betray her that I, you know, I'm out to get her. And it's not that this daughter thinks her mom agrees with everything, but she knows that if her daughter knew some of the groups that she's chatting with and some of the people she's looking to support for, that could, her daughter could feel betrayed and she could jump off that edge in a way that, you know, she mm. isn't currently. And I just, my observation from talking to so many parents now from what I saw there was that I think Jen Speck is trying to play both sides. They want to be trans accepting. Their policies say they're trans accepting. Um, and Xander was mentioned. Yeah, Xander is fine. Um, Aaron's, the Aaron's are fine mm -hmm. because they pass, right? Because these are biological females who have transitioned to present as men who tend to pass. And in those cases, all of them do. So they can get along just fine. What I 
observed at GenSpec that I haven't, I shared in my video last night was that <laughs> there was a passing trans woman at GenSpec mm -hmm. and I called her Megan. Um, her name's not Megan, but mm -hmm. when I, when I asked if I could share some of my experience with her, I agreed that I do that anonymously for, for her sake, because she passes her own coworkers have no idea she's trans. Very few people in her life know she's trans and her experience was entirely different than mine, right? Mm -hmm. Because she was welcome. She could be in circles and she did actually disclose quite often that she was trans, but she could decide when and how and in what way. And of course, I'm not using any of the washrooms. I'm going up to my, my room, but I'm being accused of it. And then she's in all the washrooms as she told me, but nobody knows because mm -hmm. she could be the one they're complaining to, right? She could be that woman mm -hmm. in the washroom who someone else is complaining to about me mm -hmm. existing there. And I'm probably using these spaces. And, and that's the that's the nuance that's getting missed in this whole thing is that's that's why this childhood desperation to transition for the dysphoric ones, not for the ones who fall into this, following their friends and following social mm -hmm. contagion. But mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. when I look at me when I was 12, I knew what would happen if I didn't transition at 12. Mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't do it because I wasn't going to talk to my parents and because I didn't really have a path forward, but I knew what I was facing. And it's no surprise to me now that we've reached a place in culture where that can be done and where that's accepted to be done, that people are going to jump on it. And if we're mm -hmm. going to tell them you shouldn't, if we're going to tell that parent, you should not transition your son, you should wait, he'll probably grow out of it. If he doesn't grow out of it, he can do something later. All the things that, that Jen Speck is saying that's in their framework, mm -hmm. then they also need to, I believe, face what's going to happen if they do choose that path, though. If that kid does reach 25 or 28, as I did, and say, I need to do this, it's not going to work for me any other way. Mm -hmm. Are we interested in creating a world that has space for individuals like me or, or not? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't observe that in GenSpec quite yet. I The framework that they put out, I couldn't sleep the second mm -hmm. night of the conference or going into the second day because time changes. So I was up at 3 a.m. So I read the whole 344 pages or whatever it is that night and highlighted some things I found very concerning. Like there was a place in the Canadian policy documents where they referred to the male intrusion in women's faces. And mm -hmm. I was like, that is not neutral language. Like for a framework that's talking about policy, that is not neutral that's you know coming in with a very specific mm -hmm. indication of intention and i know this was written by many people i know it was written very quickly i i understand who it was who wrote that portion of it and i understand their views and that isn't what was always worded in other places but if, if gen spec really stands by what they say they do if they really want to be trans inclusive and if they really want to replace w path which means they're going to have to work with trans people then i think they have some work to do to to really solidify their message and solidify their approach to say, let's actually get all the voices here. Let's actually create a space where people can have that diverse opinion, not have diverse opinion in this corner and marginalization over here. Because when the only people who show up who don't pass is Corinna, who mostly passes, and myself, who yeah, doesn't pass, and Phil, like, that's not a good sign if those are the only people who feel comfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's It's interesting. I think that we can't be perfectionistic about something like this because so many people are coming with so many emotions about this. And so um, we all have to be a little bit patient and curious about other people's responses to this. I was thinking about, you know, the parents who come in and are just devastated by the fear. Let's talk about the, the core emotion of fear, anger as well sadness but fear i think is the one that i tend to find myself zooming in on and it it won't be an organization for everyone because we are as genspect uh set against wpath so that's going to be in that space you know the the anger at that and so i think what i would love to see from both sides of this both sides you know um is just a commitment to keeping the discussion going on like who's in okay we're not we're opposed to w path now who are who is in that space properly we do have trans people who are in that space we do have fearful people who are talking about for instance you know agp is like the the, the most controversial thing I've, I've seen in this space right and so on that i kind of wanted to talk about it but i didn't want to talk about it on twitter and like who i'm going to talk to offline so here i am saying speaking on this for the first time you know um if if somebody is wearing something that I think is inappropriate for uh, conference wear, whether it's a male or a female, I don't care about that. I just, you know, you, Julia, you're talking about wearing something from the women's section of Target, which like is perfectly fine conference wear, as long as we're accepting that this is 
we're trans accepting uh, on a, in a certain way, right? And like, what does that even mean by mm. trans accepting? And we can argue about that. But um, that was, it was just like, okay, well, you know, the, the fact that this was a costumey sort of piece, like, what does that communicate? And all of these things that we negotiate in every social interaction, take trans out of it, right? Like, just go to a, a, you know, I'm in a group that had a dress code and my husband wasn't wearing what I thought was appropriate to the dress code. And I'm like, you can't leave the house wearing that. You need to change. And then he got mad at me. He's like, are you judging me? I'm like, they're going to be judging you. So all of these things that we have to negotiate in our social spaces are now combined with some of the most difficult questions and the boundaries that we as a society are struggling to sort out. Like I do have a lot of sympathy, even though I, I go to the classical liberal side, I have a lot of sympathy for wanting there to be some kind of social norm and bound around boundaries around sexuality. Like there, we, we want there to be culturally aligned that we know what that is. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the dress, as much as it was costumey and maybe didn't make me think, oh, this is a professional and serious person. It didn't make me think that, but it didn't make me think I'm fearful. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think we have to keep in mind that at a space like Genspect, we are all and well, I, I shouldn't even say we are all. Some of us as writers have exposed ourselves a little bit just even voicing these things. But those of you who are engaged in this space, the transitioners, the detransitioners, gay and lesbian who are gender nonconforming in more acute ways are really putting yourselves out there for discussion. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, this is a public service that you are doing. And I'm very grateful that there are people willing to do this. And we need to keep in mind that that's what some people are doing and the toll it takes on them and also maybe if you're going to do that, the I say this as a writer, like whenever I say something, I'm like, oh, someone's going to yell at me. That's the cost of, of contributing to this. And I say that neutrally. And I'd love to get your observations about being a person who does that. No, I, I think you've, I love how you said that. I think you've completely nailed it. it it's funny because I, I enjoy watching the criticism I get when I post something online, just to see what people's heads are at and how they interpret things differently. And I've learned lots of over my time doing this, right, of how things land. And when something like this happens, when I posted a video last week where I criticized Jen Speck for the photo incident, and then I posted one last night where I talked about this individual who who, who fully passed. And the, the stuff that comes back can be all over the place. I get accused of anything and everything. And one thing I get accused of here is I'm, I just want attention. I, I'm, I'm jealous of Phil. I want to make it about me, all of these, all of these things. And it, it couldn't be further from the truth. The, the video I put out last night, I, I filmed it the same day as the video last week. I'm wearing the same clothing. I did half an hour of a bit of a rant about Genspec and I hadn't put it out because I'm like, do I really want to go into this again? Like, I know what'll happen. It's going to be days of comments and Megan Murphy, who knows, will go down that path again. And do I really want this? And I didn't. I'm like, I'd rather spend time with my family and just not think about this. And then I got to the point that I thought, no, I do think this is an important conversation. I'm, I'm going to put it out. And I'll, I'll probably get accused again. I'm just looking for more attention and trying to make this about me. But, but I think you're right that I, I've chosen to do this very intentionally. I, I put out a video last week where I kind of announced, so to say, that I don't use any gendered spaces, period. Mm -hmm. And I haven't been doing that for quite a while. I used to, but I haven't been doing that now for quite a number of months. And it has come up occasionally online, but not often because I wasn't doing it performatively. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to make a big statement. It was more personal. This is me exploring and experimenting and trying to, you know, figure out where does this go? What does, what does work? Can I do this? And, and one question I had was, and how will other people respond to it? Because there is this narrative of what do we want from transgender women? We want you to stay out of our spaces and other than that, kind of live your best life. And we don't need to force pronouns. That's what comes up a lot. And there are individuals who I know in my life who that is true, right? That's really what they actually want. And I've also always suspected this a lot more than that. And so this has been part of what I've been trying to do is to put myself out there, like you described, to be someone that can be talked about and can be observed to say, am I, am I the model then or not? Because I'm doing that now. I'm doing this as an experiment that has no end date. I, I may continue forever. I don't know. But like, if this is what you want, then maybe you should encourage that. Maybe you should platform that. Maybe you should create space for that. And the more that I do it and there's not space for me still, the more I can say, look, I guess it wasn't about that after all. I guess I called you bluff individuals who are saying that. And, and I don't know where that, all that goes, but that's that's where my head has been at in a lot of this. Well, you know, something I just I'll make a note real quick. I didn't watch that entire conversation 
that you're referring to with Megan Murphy. And she's somebody that I have really, I've really appreciated her stance on porn. I've, I've got a lot of, without watching that whole uh, conversation, I hesitate to wade into it, but I totally understand how some uh, hearing yourself talked about, you're going to want to unload and talk about what that was like and what's the cultural dialogue that you're finding yourself inserted into either willingly or unwillingly at times, just as you're, it's part of your process, but I'm, I'm, uh, without having watched that, I won't personally comment on it. I only saw the little snippet and I objected to the the framing of the word dehumanizing. So that's just like backtracking a little bit. But I um, I think that with regard to gender transition, the genie's out of the bottle and we've got this medical model now that has swept a lot of people up in it, either because they they were making a fully informed decision for themselves that this was a thing that they wanted and that they felt was going to improve their lives, which is the case for a, a broad spectrum of, of cosmetic surgery options and, and medical options we have now to, to change ourselves. So you can, you can change a lot of things about yourself. And we have the, we have like medical concierge options. You can elect to do all kinds of things. So we, we have adults who've made this decision for themselves. We also have children who have been, uh, you know, and, and I think most of us would agree they, they, they didn't have the option to know what it was like to live in their adult body and they've been sold something that took them down a path that they shouldn't have been taken down as kids because they had no idea how they were going to end up wanting to do this. But regardless, we have people, we have a, a lot of people now walking around in our culture who have been, who have either been altered or have made choices to alter themselves in a gender non-conforming manner. And whether they are trans or whether they are detrans, we have people who are going to, uh, confuse the the eye or the ear women whose voices are low now they're detransitioners but they've been on testosterone for a long time so you look and you see a very feminine presenting person but then when she speaks you you hear a, a, a male sounding voice and so it, if we are to treat people as individuals and with human dignity and respect we have to we have to allow for the fact that even if we stop gender ideology now even if we stopped it even if the culture said you know what this was a bad idea we're not going to do it anymore we have a couple of generations of people who we we have to figure out how to help people live a, a good life and to be accepted as people in the world and the hard line on gender doesn't allow for that it doesn't and so I, I guess I, I don't know what the question is there. It's just something that I've been thinking. This is something that I'm kicking around. Julia, I, I, you use the phrase a lot, non-passing trans woman. And so that, that, show, that shows like an awareness on your part that you present people with some, there's an ambivalence. People don't know what to do, what to think. And, and there are going to be a lot of people like that. And so I, I guess, what are, what are your thoughts on this and how do we integrate and how do we create a, even if we, we want to call out what we have a problem with, how do we do that while not throwing out the lives of these people who are still very valid people who want to live and work and love and do all the things that everybody else wants to do? Yeah, I, I think it depends on what we have a problem with mm -hmm. in, a certain, in a certain sense. I, I think a lot of the the challenging, the, a lot of the challenge that we have here is that you've mentioned how nuanced it is, how complicated it is. And there's many people who don't have a full grasp of this because they're not devoting their lives to looking at all this nuance. Those are not the people who are on podcasts like this, but th there's many people in the conversation who have an angle mm -hmm. and maybe haven't attempted or have no interest in looking beyond that angle. And then you have people who maybe do have perspectives that span beyond that, but they have they don't have a lot of interest in it because they still they're coming in with a particular agenda. In the in the discussion we had before this, we talked a little bit like before we were recording. We were talking a little bit about how not everyone's even looking for solutions. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for solutions here. I, I want to find pathways forward that actually end this conversation, so that I'm not coming on your podcast in ten years talking about gender. Like as much as I love to talk about it, I hope we get somewhere with this and. If you if that's the intention, then you kind of have to listen to all sides. You can think someone's side is stupid. You can think someone's side is wrong, but it doesn't matter because 
if they're a if they're a player in the game, then they can do something. And, and I and I say game because I did a lot of game theory in my um, undergrad, and I had this course called Conflict Resolution, and we would look at modeling conflicts, and that could be a conflict like the Vietnam War, or it could be a conflict like a bunch of friends having a fight, and we would model it from that perspective of game theory, which is to say there's different players who can do things and there's different things that they can do. And we would computationally, because this was a, a, an engineering course, we computationally solve for the outcomes that that game could have that were what we would call um, stable. And stable means you get to a place where it doesn't just perpetuate. If you look at the Cold War, you know, we the states could have just bombed Moscow. Yay, we got them back. Well, what's gonna happen? Well, they bombed Washington and it just, that's not stable, it just blows up. If you actually want to get to a stable place, there's certain things you can do that get there. And when I look at all of these conversations, whether we're talking about gender dress, whether we're talking about spaces, whether we're talking about childhood, social or medical transition, I look at it from that angle of who's at the table, what do they want? What are they gonna to try to push for? What can they push for? And where do we find that place that maybe nobody's happy, but everyone's like, okay, we've actually found a place that we can sit. and. I find there are individuals on both sides who want to do that. There are people on the progressive side. There are trans individuals who want that. And there's people on the gender critical side. And they all message me privately. <laughs> we all chat in these little factions. If that group could get together and cut out each of their own extremism, cut out the progressive extreme, cut out the gender critical extreme, I honestly think that there we'd find solutions fairly easily. If that was the conference we had, if it was GenSpec, but cut out the 20% of the extremists and add in some of the progressive element that are not comfortable there, I think that would get us to a place where we could have some really powerful conversations. I think, okay, so finding solutions easily, I don't, I think I agree with you, but here's the, the, the hard question, right? I think you make a great point about understanding why a young male bodied person who has gender dysphoria might want to, you know, transition early. Is it an easy solution? Because I do come down on being adamantly against childhood transition, even though I see that your argument is is good. Is that a place where we find an easy solution to say, actually, no, the harms outweigh the good? Or is that, I mean, is that an easy solution or is it not in your view? I mean, I think that there's, there's two ways that conversation could go. And and by the way, we our, our takeaway item from this should absolutely be to put together that committee and do this because think of how cool that would be. But <laughs> when it comes to childhood transition, childhood medical transition specifically, I guess I say two things. One point I'll see put up a lot is, well, we, we shouldn't do it or we can't do it because of lists of risks, lists of regrets, all the bad things that could happen, which I agree with and I don't want to deny those. And then people might say, yes, it might be better for some people. Maybe some people like like me, I felt this way as a kid. I still felt this way at 28 and I don't regret it. So maybe there are some it is best for, but how are we going to know who they are? How are we going to make sure we don't make those mistakes? So so that creates at least the discussion of, can we do that? Can we find those people? And, and I'm not saying we can. I'm more on the side of we probably can't, but right. maybe we can. At least we could have that, that conversation there. Mm -hmm. The second piece, though, and what I was trying to focus on in my video last night was, I believe that in a world where dignity is bestowed upon people like myself who don't pass, who transition and don't pass. And people can tell, but I'm treated respectfully and I'm still given dignity that I can get behind that message of you shouldn't do it. We shouldn't mm -hmm. have childhood transition because mm -hmm. of the risks and everything. And look, it's fine if you don't pass. Yes, you didn't get what you wanted. I compare it to when my daughter wants a tattoo, right? She wants a tattoo at 15. I didn't let her have one because she might regret it. But the only thing she's lost if she gets that at 18 or 19 or 20 or whenever is she didn't have it. She wasn't the cool 15 year old with a tattoo. It's it's fine. If we create that world where it's like, look, 12 year old, you feel this way. You think you need this. You might change your mind. Wait till you're 25, not 18. Wait till you're 25. So you've really got some adulthood under your belt. It is a possibility if you need to, but we can then give them a life where they're not going to be disparaged and they're not going to be marginalized. Well, then that's a very different equation than yeah. where we stand right now, which is we push, you can't change this as a child, but we're not really doing anything to deal with the, the marginalization and the, the contempt that can come towards transgender women in particular. It's not passing transgender women. We're just kind of saying, that's not our problem. Mm -hmm. We're concerned with the children. Mm -hmm. And that to me sounds just like any other politician who says, I'm worried about clean energy. I'm not worried about jobs as though mm -hmm. they're not connected in, the, you know, in, in our world. Right. right. It becomes no. a circular argument that's almost untouchable. And mm -hmm. 
Julia, so there's ways in which you do receive that kind of that that social approbation and and the the mocking and the ridicule and the scorn and the the nasty comments. But do you feel like you also have experiences that do validate the uh, the choices that you've made to transition later and to maybe not pass as well? Do you feel like there are ways that you can represent that to someone who maybe it's like a we're talking about a 17 year old who's desperate for this and his parents are saying no don't but if you're 25 that's when your your frontal lobe is is developed and you can make whatever choices you want and we'll support you in that choice and he says but i just see myself if i do that i'm not going to have the the same chance of passing when i'm older i'm not going to pass as well i'm going to look more masculine and do you have experiences that can comfort that kid right now are there ways in which you are finding doors opening for you and people accepting you? There's there's so much I would love to say to that. Um, I, I think the first thing that I would say is yes and no. Mm-hmm. Yes and no in that mm-hmm. I, well, we already went into autogynephilia mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. So I get accused of that all the time, of course, because definitionally, for many people's eyes, that must be what I am, right? Because I am married to a woman mm-hmm. and those are the choices. Um, for myself, my transition was very much socially motivated. I never felt sexual attraction really at all in, in no deep way. Didn't care for it whatsoever. Um, I didn't have sex till I got married. And that was for my wife at the time because we were very religious at church. For me, it was because I had no interest. And I actually told her the month before we got married, we were laying in bed together because we lived together and hadn't had sex. And I said, I'm really worried. What if we have a kid when we start having sex? Because we were both students. And I'm like, what if we just keep not having sex? And that was kind of the moment I realized like, oh, she's been looking forward to this for years. I didn't care at all. Like I, I have a very disconnected relationship for whatever reason. Could be could be related to all the gender stuff. I have no idea, but I've never cared much about it. Um, it was nothing to do with fetish. It was nothing to do with even the physicality of it. It had mm-hmm. everything to do with a deep unworkability in my social placement and all of my relationships. We seem to have this narrative that we have broken down so much of our gendered society. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done that to a certain extent, but it's mostly been one-sided. I often go back to Lisa Selen Davis's book when she talks about tomboys and kind of looks at that over the history. And yes, there's all of these ways that Women can wear whatever they want and they can move into all of these careers. And we've, we've done very little, if not at nothing, to work the other way. And growing up as a, as a 90s kid, that was kind of my experience. I was this boy who didn't fit in because I didn't do the boy things. And there was no space for that. And of course, the girls could be sporty. The girls could move into all of the boy areas, but, but I couldn't move into anything else. I couldn't do extracurriculars because I could be in girl guides that had the activities that I liked to do. It wasn't about... I need to have a vagina. It was my the people who I connect with, who are my friends, who I seem to want to do the same things with, who I relate to, I'm walled off from. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the piece of the conversation that in my mind is still missing. When I wrote about this in, a, in an article with the National Post, I talked about washrooms and sports as two examples. And we can pretend that washrooms are just a place to pee, but they're not just a place to pee. They're also a social sanctuary. They are a place where you go as a refuge in high school. They're a place you go to talk about the boys. They're a place you go to vape nowadays. This is a place that does a lot more for women than just be a place to pee. Sports is not just about competition. It is about competition. It's also about teamwork and camaraderie. And for many people, you ask them, where are those deep, best high school memories? It was that high school basketball team that you played on, or it was your hockey team, or it was these kinds of communities that you've built. And that's what those spaces are. It's not just about competition. It's not just about safety. It's not just about fairness. It is about those things, but it's about so much more as well. So for me, my transition was motivated by a deep unworkability of everything in my life. I'd always felt this. I saw four counselors before the age of grade six as a kid of why can't Jason find any friends? Why doesn't he get along with anybody? Then in high school, I was able to cope because when you're a boy who really understands the girls, you're very popular with the girls. Like you're, you're the kind of person you want to have around because you, you have this bridging between these two different worlds. And so I had the connections through that and through university. And then I hit the age that 
all of my female friends are getting married and they're having kids. And all of a sudden they're attracting back into those women's communities, into those mother communities, not going and hanging out with their friend, Jason, who's some other 28 year old guy who's married to somebody else. That wasn't acceptable the way that it had been previously. And for me, that was what caused my life to collapse. And when I say collapse, I, I collapsed it very rarely, um, career-wise, relationally, and a bunch of other things I'm not going to talk about right now. Um, and that was what finally brought me to the place of saying, I'm going to try this transition. Now, I wish this had a happy ending. I wish I was going to say, and I did that and everything turned around, but it, it didn't. I, I went through a transition and I realized that I don't pass, which means I still don't have that. It, it did some things for me because now it forced vulnerability. So now I'm wearing on my face how I feel, something deeply personal, which creates an opportunity for me to create really deep relationships for people who are interested in it. But when I'm not accepted in women's spaces, and when I say spaces here, I don't mean the washroom. I mean the community. When I'm not accepted into the circles, when I'm not accepted into those social structures that was what I was looking for and what had always made sense to me, I didn't actually gain what I was what I was looking for. So in that sense, I can't tell that kid that that I got what I wanted here because I don't pass, right? When I talk to my friend from Genspec, she she has all of that. Mm -hmm. Now she has her own problems because she is now stealth, which means very few people know she's trans. So she's telling me how valuable she had she found it talking to me because she doesn't get to talk about her experience. Mm -hmm. She's living a lie, mm -hmm. not telling talking about the first many years of her life in a way that I'm not, I'm very truthful about everything, but I'm also, I haven't found that community in my life still. Mm -hmm. So where did I end up finding purpose and kind of a way to root myself? Well, by doing this, by mm -hmm. talking about it, by kind of addressing these conversations is where I found it. And that has been fulfilling. And for me, that has been the stabilizing force that I needed. And it's actually also given me a community because it's helped me to find those classical liberals who give me something to root with, but it makes it really challenging when that, the example I gave in my video, I said, you know, when a mother and her 10 year old son come to me and they talk about this, that, that happens to me. And when it does, I'm in a tough spot because I want to talk about rapid onset. I want to talk about the risks and I do, cause I, that's all important to hear, but I can't look them in the eye and say, you'll be treated well. If you transition as an adult, you'll have a community as an adult. I have to say, you, you might, if you pass, then you might have that. Mm -hmm. but we could fix that but for me that's all that is our society right that is not biology mm -hmm. that's something we can change I've talked way too much I'm gonna pass it over to you I, two again I just thank you for sharing your personal story that's really fascinating to me and I think going like we were talking about like being a voice on the internet where people are trying to sort out these 30,000 foot view understanding of like ROGD versus AGP versus HSTS and all the different etiologies and like, and that's useful, like we need that. But too many of us are trying to live on that level when we really shouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. um, you brought up game theory. I don't know that much about game theory, but I have one thing that I'm going to pull out, which is the prisoner's dilemma. And the idea of if you do the prisoner's dilemma one time, then you should just betray everyone and stab each other in the back. And that's the, the way you maximize your payoff. But if you play an iterated series of prisoner's dilemmas, then the best thing to do is to cooperate. And then you get, you maximize your score over time. And so like, the, the, look it up. Robert Axelrod did a, a experiment, University of Michigan, go blue. Um, and I took away from that mathematical model that like, if you build a relationship and you risk cooperating and you risk listening, then that's going to be the way that you you do this. And so I go back to the relational element that we're not just walking representations of a theory. We're people. And when we put ourselves out there, we become that. Like we cannot help that. And we do need to have a thick skin. I'm not telling you anything I don't tell myself. I tell myself this all the time. People are going to be mad at me if I become a writer and I just have to get over it. And I not even in one of these marginalized identities and I get there, I have haters and it's really hard. So I can't even imagine if I got more than that, I'd probably just break down. I mean, I probably would. Um, but, you know, just hearing the stories and putting them out there and having people able to talk about their motives and their experiences and then having someone else answer them honestly to say, well, I have a different experience or I like have you ever considered it this way there's a something called the Johari window which are things known about our that we know about ourselves and things others know about us and you can that's two axes and so you have four quadrants and that's really interesting to explore but like you just shared something about yourself that doesn't fit the standard 
model. And now I'm like, wow, I, I learned about another human's experience. And just the difference also that you that, that you touched on, the difference between the physiologically like male experience and then the transition to become female and then the physiological, you know, female, the opposite one, they're, they're just so different. Some of the things that motivate me to speak out on this issue are just trying to look out for girls. Uh, I mean, I've written about giftedness, right? Like it's super tacky. I don't like calling it that, but like intellectually driven, thinky, cerebral, nerdy girls who intimidate people because they want to talk about ideas and how they get discouraged. But the flip side of that is that gifted boys tend to be more sensitive, right? Like that is just demonstrated in uh, so the uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi uh, was a emeritus professor of psychology who did creativity. He's the guy who came up with flow. He recently passed away, but he's like, check out his popular work, Creativity. He talks about androgyny as a, as a trait of these creative kids, both boys and girls. And so there's something to just being a person who lives on the margins and the difficulty of that. And being like I get called a pick me you know just for wanting to you know I want to like the boys talk about ideas and like literally I was hanging out at a debate society which is mostly I'm like this is kind of a boys club and it's my friend who's a guy who invited me and my husband there and and they're like yeah it kind of is and they're playing with swords you know and and literally Twitter fed up something about you know pick me's are just these girls who want to hang out and like with people who publish in journals and play with swords I'm like oh I feel like I'm being picked on um (laughs) but I just want to go where someone wants to engage with me but I also live in this body where you know a, a story that I share that just in you know creates my visceral reaction to some of this and to having male bodied people or like whatever language you want to use uh in spaces where women are vulnerable was when you know when I was in my early 20s and I also was like I'm piecing out of this sexuality thing it's not safe for me you know I'm expected to be on birth control but I don't I don't want to do that I you know I have I'm a little bit more socially conservative that way even though I'm trying not to be the prude right no one's gonna like me but um so that's challenging for young women which Louise Perry's book is now getting into all that kind of stuff not to go off on that tangent but I knew that male people were stronger than me, but I'd never tested it before, right? Um, and then one day, this guy who I turned out to actually have a crush on me uh, was, but he was my buddy. And so we got into this place where he was like roughhousing with me in the dorm and held me down. And this was my friend. And so I wasn't actually scared, but the feeling that I I was utterly helpless if he wanted to do something that I tried to get away and I could not was, despite the fact that I didn't feel unsafe, was one of the most terrifying feelings of my life. And so I have some male friends who are like, well, who cares if there's a guy on, on a sports team? Like they don't really think about it or on a women's sports team, a male bodied person. And I'm just like, hey, man, I know you're trying to be tolerant and whatever, but like. I remember that feeling of being held down mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. that men can't understand because uh, I didn't understand it till it happened to me. It's the, it's the embodied feeling of it. So, you know, and I don't put that out there to trump anyone else's ideas. It's just like, hey, now we know something about each other and what we're bringing to this conversation. And like, and the motivation I have after that is to keep the conversation going and to say like, hey, I have my friend Julia now who I learned something about and she learned something about me. And isn't human experience amazing and interesting? And we will have conflicts, but because we've got that iterated prisoner's dilemma going, there's some hope that we can work it out. And I hope that spaces like GenSpec could cultivate a culture that does that. That's why I'm with Braver Angels, you know, trying to establish that as part of our culture. But I also don't want to be too uh, overly sunny about it, right? Like the conflicts are real. Some people will lose some of these things and that will really hurt them and they will really lose a lot you know, like the, the, the boy who wants to be a girl who transitions late, like that's, that's hard. That's, that's going to cause pain, you know? So, yeah. I think that's brilliantly articulated, Jesse. And I think that the value of, like you said, sharing individual experiences is that just to come back to that word, it humanizes us. And it shows that no one person is a representative for, and this is the thing that I've been so frustrated with the social justice ideology about this entire time. 
a person is not a representative of a group. A person is a representative of themselves, and they're going to have a lot of different, um, uh, different factors and different influences and different experiences and thoughts that are going to come together. And some of those are going to be representative of ideologies and groups, but, but the, at the core is an, is a human being who's trying to synthesize this and trying to understand and move through life. And so both of those, the, both of you sharing those experiences, I think is really, is really important in, in bringing this back to a human level. And I think that to give Genspect credit, I, my impression, and I'm not, I'm not like intimately um, aligned with, with Genspec, but I appreciate the work that they're doing. My impression is that this has come up in a way that's probably pretty surprising for everybody within that organization as well. The way that this has come out, because if you read their, their mission statement, they very specifically include trans people and mm -hmm. detransitioners in their umbrella. They're, this is who they they are as a, a group of people who are concerned about the medicalization of gender in specifically in youth and and treating gender in a different way with the way that we've moved towards it needs to be reevaluated and and i imagine that this conversation is going to continue and hopefully be able to fold people in who are currently finding themselves factionalized and frustrated with different things and so uh, you know, I, I guess as we draw to a close for this conversation, what do you think we, how can we find a way to, to find common ground as we move forward? What is something that can be uniting for everybody who is concerned about this, regardless of some of the disagreements that we might have? I mean, for me, <laughs> I would say, what is this? Like you said, you know, united on this and that, that for mm -hmm. me is the problem. Is this, that defining it. I agree with what you said. Like I, I have so many friends in Genspec and I still love them. And, you know, I, I, I think this will get fixed. I'm, I'm disappointed right now mm -hmm. with what I experienced and the way the conversations have gone over the last two weeks, mm -hmm. but I'm not giving up. Like, I, I think they're going to find their way, but what they have on their site, their statements, I'm like, yes, that's what I thought Genspec was because that's what they've said they are. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other people who I think thought Genspec was something else. Um, and they haven't faced this because they haven't had something blow up the way that this did with myself or with Phil. So I think knowing what this is, being able to be maybe clear and a bit more forward on the surface of this is what we are, mm -hmm. so that people who are not aligned with that, whomever that is, know that maybe this isn't the right organization. And, and people who are can double down on that, I think is the first step. Well, as we move into this conversation, I, I guess I'm thinking beyond just one organization and into what feels like some kind of a, a movement of pushback against gender ideology that's gone off the rails. When we see what's happening in schools, when we see the way that children are being presented with ways to think about their bodies and their and sexuality and gender, it's I think there's so many of us, the three of us included and, and many others who have just felt compelled to stand up and go whoa that's that's not right there's we, we have to we have to create a shift this can't be allowed to continue and so i guess defining what that is what is that it, what is yeah. the movement it's got to have some kind of narrowly tailored scope and goal right mm -hmm. and then a big tent of anyone who shares that purpose right how do we define you know what is gender ideology what does it refer to here's our mission, here's what we're for, and otherwise everything else is not our concern and we will be tolerant, right? Tolerant in that proper classical liberal sense. Um, you know, you you don't tolerate things that you like, right? You tolerate things that make you unhappy. So we'll be tolerant of people who have views that we maybe think are odious, we'll make space for that, we'll, we'll put that aside while we work on this shared goal. And then to the extent that we're tolerating something, I would add as a as a bonus, if you can go further, is to be curious about that, to add to build to that relationship. And maybe you'll you'll have to tolerate it less and you'll become a little more softened. Or maybe you'll realize that you have to, nope, this is where I'm drawing my boundary, because that's also, I don't want to be too like, let's all be nice. Sometimes you have to have boundaries. But curiosity is the step to figuring out which of those it should be. I like that. Tolerant and curious. I think that that is a much better place than emotionally um, volatile, like we've been seeing. Emotional <laughs> volatility is yeah. saying yes. <clears throat> well, thank you both so much for having this conversation and 
I, I hope we have many more. And what are you two working on? And would you like to direct people if they wanted to follow you or, or find out more about what you're doing? Um, Julia, you first. Uh, sure. Um, what am I working on? Right now I'm working on Christmas shopping. That's my my current initiative. But no, uh, in this space, I'm uh, so I spend a lot of time on Twitter. My handle is Alotta Malotta, A-L-O-T-T-A-M-A-L-O-T-T-A. Uh, I make videos where I kind of explore a lot of these conversations. And I also uh, write columns for the National Post, which is a center conservative newspaper in Canada. I'm one of our national papers here. So I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get the thoughts out to, to what I call bridge the divide, to say that the solutions that we're looking for as are true of any conflict involve understanding both sides, involve caring about both sides and involve bringing people to the table so that they can talk and they can know each other. And I've always seen my role in that to be in the gender critical space because I share lots of views over here. There's lots of things that I'm very aligned with, but also because there are not many trans voices here. And I know that when, when there's a group of people who we have no experience with and no exposure to, it's easy to dehumanize without even trying, right? Because we they're not human to us because we don't know them. And so that's kind of been what, where I spend a lot of my time in the work that I'm doing. Um, and yeah, I can be found on on Twitter and other social media platforms. Excellent. And Jesse? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter at JL uh, Manisto, M-A-N-N-I-S-T-O. And I also... I wear a few different hats. I do edit for Genspect, so I do have some affiliation with them, though I'm not speaking here on their behalf. And I volunteer with Braver Angels. I love the debates, like I was saying. So if you're interested in this, uh, you should you should come uh, sign up for some of their online national debates. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, follow me, uh, ping me on, my DMs are open on, on Twitter, and I'll let you know about some of the stuff we're doing in person. And then I also run Third Factor Magazine, at Third Factor Mag on Twitter, thirdfactor.org which is uh, about the sort of uh, intense cerebral life and uh, trying to sort out our values. So we do talk about this issue among others, but that's the, those are some of the places you can find me. And you recently launched a podcast for Third Factor, didn't you, Jesse? Yes, yes, indeed. And we had an episode about the very, the first Genspect conference uh, in Killarney. It was episode seven with Alistair Gunn. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about the the upcoming one. I haven't done that yet, so uh, but that'll be soon. So yeah, I'm, I'm a, look. You can find me wherever you get your podcast. Third Factor. Excellent. Well, thank you both again so much, and I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, yeah, everyone. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. Thank you.